Hello, I'm Julian Pagini and welcome to the last of four podcasts exploring the relationship and tensions between hierarchy and equality. They've been made in association with the Berglund Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. Today's podcast is an unlikely pairing of medieval Islamic philosophy and Friedrich Nietzsche. In many ways, these couldn't be more different, but as we'll see, they both provide challenges to modern Western egalitarian ideals. Discussing these issues with me were Carlos Frankel, who's James McGill, Professor of Philosophy and Jewish Studies at McGill University in Montreal, and the author of Philosophical Religions from Plato to Spinoza, Reason, Religion and Autonomy, and Matthias Riesa, Professor of Philosophy and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and the author of Global Political Philosophy. I began by asking Carlos Frankel whether he really thought that the paternalistic hierarchical ideas of the falsafa Islamic tradition can actually be used to promote rational autonomy. Yeah, that's right. So, so it seems paradoxical, but um, that's indeed my claim that um, one of the main aims of what I call divine law paternalism in this medieval tradition is uh, to maximize rational autonomy. That seems somewhat implausible to us at first, but you know, what can make a good case for that. If we were brought up in a Western liberal democracy, we're sort of by default egalitarians. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to somehow go to China or to Nietzsche or to the Middle Ages to find positions that actually challenge our egalitarian assumptions. And, um, you know, in a certain way, these medieval philosophers do that because they do argue for a position that, you know, strikes us as morally pernicious, namely paternalism, right, where people consider it legitimate that that some people rule others and interfere with their autonomy, uh, maybe even coercively. But um, the more I studied um, their project, um, the less unattractive it sort of appeared to me, um, precisely because I saw that um, they're very concerned with maximizing rational autonomy, which I think is something that we also can relate to. They value rational autonomy. What gets in the way of our rational autonomy? Yeah, so I think the main problem is that um, we are imperfectly rational agents. And I think they take that to be a kind of a part of the human condition, as it were. So it's not possible to, to correct that. Even the best education system cannot transform us into perfectly rational agents. And um, in order to be perfectly rational, autonomous, you have to be uh, you know, a perfectly rational agent. You have to have perfect knowledge of what is right. And that's something that is unattainable, according to them, because I think that um, this kind of knowledge is so vast and complex that one cannot really master it. But at the same time, the thing that you can attain rational autonomy by degree. So the fact that we cannot be perfectly rational, rationally autonomous does not entail that we cannot be rational autonomous at all, but we can be imperfectly rationally autonomous. And that's what they sort of aim to achieve. And that's about having divine law paternalism, as you put it, help us to do that. It's presumably it's about trying to sort of close the gap between right. our imperfect knowledge and perfect knowledge right. by accepting some kind of what divine authority yeah yeah I mean so so, so, so first of all you know the, the concept of divine law seems to us to directly contradict the idea of autonomy right so so not we are in charge but God is in charge uh, not we make the rules but God makes the rules so it really seems that we are not autonomous at all mm. we have to submit to God uh, or to the prophet or the religious leaders who uh, you know convey God's will and so it seems really unintuitive to claim that this actually promotes rational autonomy. But I think the basic idea is, so, so they conceive the prophet as a kind of very accomplished philosopher 
who has a firm grasp of the good, but he's not only a philosopher, he's also something like a good popularizer of science. He's capable of giving people sort of a picture of the universe and their place in the universe, their place in the social world, which allows them to then act in a way that is determined by reasons. And so uh, in the end, the communication of the prophet really is a, you know, pro provides a kind of rational conceptual framework that allows people to make the right decisions on their own once they have grasped that framework. Is that an idea which is completely alien to the kind of tradition that you work in, um, Matthias? Or, or is there something, is there some correlate to this? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, Kant's idea of autonomy is at the same time an idea of submission to a law which is outside ourselves, isn't it? It, it is a very alien thought, uh, actually. So if you if you think about the Enlightenment project, and uh, this is now sufficiently broadly conceived to actually range from Rousseau via Kant and all the way to Nietzsche, what they what these guys all have in common is that morality or any any kind of duties uh, come from within ourselves. So they are ex expressions of a self properly understood. I mean, Carlos was saying one of the reasons for looking at these ideas is to sort of provide some challenge and shake us up. And isn't part of the challenge of this that actually, you know, this desire to find everything within yourself is, is doomed? I mean, Nietzsche, you talked about, would, would agree that we're very far from perfectly rational. No, but then, so the, the, the contrast here um, between the Enlightenment views broadly conceived and those views that they were up against is that the Enlightenment views are autonomy focused and the views they're up against are all about uh, the guidance is coming from an external source. So the uh, what's what's exciting, what's both exciting and paradox paradoxical about the view that Carlos is bringing into the discussion is that uh, referring to the outside source is autonomy enhancing, and that is uh, playing a bit of a trick on uh, on on the on the move tree here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Isn't is it a trick? I mean, in a certain way, you could say that the ideal of the Enlightenment project, namely a community of you know perfectly rational agents who are self-legislating, just follow the instructions or the prescriptions of their own reason, is an ideal that the medieval philosophers share, but they think it's unattainable given the reality of human nature. Um, and so it becomes something like mm -hmm. a regulative ideal, so they try to approach the real human communities as mm -hmm. much as possible to it, but they try to somehow incorporate as much as possible into the real communities, but they think that it cannot be fully achieved. And, and, and I think one of the main differences between um, the medieval philosophers and the variety of Enlightenment thinkers is that they don't have um, this concept of intellectual cultural progress, right? That human beings are somehow mm -hmm. perfectible, right? This idea that um, that human beings may not have been uh, you know, perfectly rational always, but that over time, that history in some kind of teleological way mm. works itself towards this kind of perfect community. Mm. But, that, 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 but that, of course, exactly is the hallmark of the Enlightenment and the contrast right. uh, that, I mean, it's not confined to the Enlightenment, but in a way, this is the departure from the Middle Ages that more stock is being put into individual judgment, mm. and that individuals actually really have the capacity of thinking for themselves. But, but isn't it the case, though, that increasingly people are sceptical about that Enlightenment ambition, and now, in fact, it's sort of like quite fashionable to, to dismiss it? So given that, oughtn't we to be looking at um, 
alternatives to that you know it, finding ways of accepting our limitations and and giving up what a lot of people would say the illusion that we can move towards this perfectibility and create this progress i think in part it depends on what we think moral autonomy requires right so, so the medieval philosophers think that you have to somehow understand the universe as a whole um, in order to be morally autonomous so you have to understand both the natural order and in addition to that also the social order and that of course is a very high demand but if you don't share that view as Kant does not for example then you might be able to make a case for the possibility of moral autonomy where you don't have to satisfy this very high high demand but if you do share that view that actually in order to be autonomous rational agents we have to understand everything pretty much then you might become quite skeptical about, mm. about the possibility of rational, of perfect rational autonomy. Final question on this one uh, for you, Carlos. If we, do, if we don't have the idea that we have any access to divine law and we can sort of plug the gap between our own limitations and the way we should be through that, what, what use is this idea to so us? I uh, sort of uh, finished high school in 1990 when the Soviet bloc was somehow collapsing and like many people I had the sense at the time that somehow secular and liberal Western values and attitude would somehow spread around the world and like many people I now think that that's not going to be uh, anytime soon and um, I think there's now this sort of a concept of, of a post-secular world and I think there's some evidence uh, for that. Uh, you know, we live in a world in which religions continue to thrive and be, be vital and, and so I think we, we will have to somehow engage with a lot of people for whom the divine law continues being something important and the way these medieval philosophers try to deploy the, the, the divine law, try to co-opt it for their kind of enlightenment project, if you want to call it that, uh, I think remains interesting because so many people still follow divine law, right? And, and so, so some of these strategies that they have developed might, might still come in handy because, because the kind of you know, militant enlightenment attitude doesn't, doesn't seem to have much, much purchase in a lot of people. Uh, you know, these kind of militant sort of neo-enlightenment atheists, uh, you know, they're very loud, but, but religious people don't, don't listen to them. Um, and, and so some of these strategies that the medieval philosophers developed might actually still be interesting. Well, Matthias, turning to what you, you were talking about, um, Nietzsche, and uh, you were pointing out that uh, people might be surprised or doubt that Nietzsche has a theory of justice, but he does have a, an idea of justice. Nietzsche is a deeply non-religious thinker, a uh, deeply non-egalitarian thinker. He thinks that all the... Uh, egalitarian coloring that many people associate with justice these days is a product of a very misguided historical process where Christianity uh, played a, uh, a, a major role. So uh, a lot of people think of justice and they have these ideas about uh, inherent human dignity that everybody has uh, equally and Nietzsche wants none of that. So Nietzsche emphasizes the enormous range of differences among human beings. He says we just all are uh, very different. Very few of us uh, display any kind of serious capacity to accomplishment. Uh, very few of us display the form of excellence that humanity is capable of. Uh, and his message really is rather crude that societies should be organized around these people. Uh, and that everybody else should just make their peace with the fact that life is not about them. And the notion of justice that accompanies this view is that everybody should be treated in accordance with their, uh, with their human capacities. And again, uh, only in very few cases will this mean a lot of capacities. 
one of the sort of challenging views of that is the way in which it does undermine this ideal that um, we, humans are equal in a, in a fundamental sense. Which, as you say, he point he claims is a distinctly Christian idea. Now, mm. is it the case that it's an idea which has its roots in Christianity, mm. or actually fundamentally depends upon a Christian? idea of being equal under the eyes of God in order for it to be maintained? Well, of course, that's a, that's a much debated uh, question among philosophers. So Nietzsche's point is both, right? So he thinks that this is an idea that uh, has crept up, uh, certainly in the Western context, only in the Christian context. So the, this, this wasn't part of the, of the ancient world, Christianity. Uh, put in the seeds of a framework that eventually would lead to egalitarian thinking. I say put in the seeds because, uh, of course, Christianity itself has displayed hugely egalitarian tendencies. The Catholic Church is not exactly uh, a massive uh, diachronic uh, movement for equality, but the the idea that every human being is created in the image of God, that is a that is a starting point for more egalitarian demands. And that's since Nietzsche thinks it comes in, into our intellectual context through Christianity. It has no other way of coming into the European uh, context through Christianity. Uh, but then it also, uh, it, 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 it throws the, the Christian starting point, throws a long shadow. So why are uh, Kantian ethicists, why are utilitarians, why are so many secular people, people who decidedly do not think of themselves as doing theological work or even being theologically inspired, why are they uh, advocating ideas of equality? Well, Nietzsche thinks they're ultimately undermined. They are, they are penetrated by intuitions that have their origin in Christianity and they, uh, and, and they haven't fully realized that. So, so indeed both. So um, the origins are within Christianity. All the views that are defending views of equality somehow and other subconsciously, as it were, get them from Christianity. And once we have cleansed these views of their Christian origins, there is, according to Nietzsche, nothing we can say uh, to support them. It's exactly interesting that the medieval philosophers like Nietzsche are non-egalitarians, right? So they are not committed, they're clearly not committed to this principle of, you know, a fundamental moral equality of human beings, but they are perfectionists and they think that there are different degrees of excellence and, um, you know, a person's value depends on how excellent he or she becomes, what degree of excellence he or she achieves. And they actually do tie that to an interpretation of precisely the passage in the Bible that Nietzsche thinks is somehow you know, the source of all evil, um, this idea that um, human beings are created in the image of God. And so uh, for the medieval Jewish philosopher Maimonides, for example, um, being created in the image of God is not a given, but it's an achievement. Being created in the image of God is something that you actually have to achieve. You have to actualize your intellect by learning all these sciences. And, and he describes people who do not perfect their intellect as actually animals. You know, they look like human beings, but um, but 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 in terms of their moral status, they're actually subhuman. And yet, the medieval mind also itself produces ideas that, in the overall scheme of things, one can connect to the later uh, coming to greater fruition of egalitarian ideas, namely specifically the right, this is the famous right of necessity. So right of necessity, uh, we are all entitled uh, as human beings to, uh, in cases of emergency, to take, to take for ourselves what it takes to survive. And why is that an entitlement? Well, it's the, it's the divine nature that lives in all of us that generates this. And of course, that by itself, a right of necessity, is a, is a far cry from a full-fledged idea of equality. 
but that illustrates my my earlier point that there's the, the Christian outlook and there is this there's the seed of egalitarian thinking that comes from mm-hmm. this idea of uh, of creation in the divine image that of course there's also countervailing uh, tendencies and they have been dominant for much of the time but that's that's what a tradition is right you have uh, a body of thoughts and a bunch of ideas to work with and they have been combined in very different ways in different periods mm-hmm. now I mean Nietzsche's mm-hmm. view is a very kind of bleak one a very sort of unpleasant one unsavory one to a lot of people mm-hmm. but you, you think that we can we could accept his certain premises we could accept the fact that not all humans are equal in capacity or even worth in ranking mm-hmm. but that doesn't entail the rebarbative conclusion that therefore we have to treat uh, people in, in hugely different ways. So how, how do you square that? How do you manage to avoid oh. the, the horrible conclusion mm-hmm. of Nietzsche's mm-hmm. premises? The one reason why Nietzsche is of such great interest to me is because he is right in a lot of the cultural analysis, the historical analysis about how we ended up with certain uh, moral views about the relevance of Christianity. All that I think is right and I think it is, uh, it's, it is important for philosophy to think about the foundations of any kind of views, including notions of moral equality, in a way that is cleansed of these ideas. And um, I think that is an important project also because I disagree with Carlos that, that, it's, that it's important to somehow keep religion in the running. I think it is very healthy for the world to to uh, get rid of religion as much as we can. So I, I, I wasn't saying that, that, that we should preserve religion I, it, it was more a statement of fact it, yeah. seems, it seems that religion is not going <laughs> okay. but so so then, then so then Nietzsche uh, so Nietzsche is right in in giving us this clarion call and saying look uh, you really have to be aware how much you have been penetrated by highly problematic uh, religious views does this mean that we have to go his own way does this mean that we actually have to uh, embrace this view that there is uh, for one thing that there is these massive differences among human beings and and then secondly that societies should be organized in such a way that they are that they are responsive to that so that the the excellent human beings get their run of the field and everybody else should just be dancing around them so that's the that's that second step that i would then disagree with so two 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 uh, two quick ways of articulating that for one thing uh, Nietzsche himself has this idea that we need to translate human beings back into nature. We need to remove the transcendental world, the otherworldliness that Christianity has utilized in order to formulate its, uh, its theology. Uh, he, he thinks we should translate human beings back into nature, understand them as products of evolution. And I think if you do that, uh, and I think it's quite right to insist on that, what you will discover is that there is a distinctively human life. There is a human brain that has evolved over uh, in the course of evolution that has given us as human beings an amazing range of abilities as individuals, but in particular and also to do things together. And it's this distinctively human life that makes us so truly awesome uh, as, as the outcomes of revolution of evolution and it makes us awesome in ways that we can formulate just fine without going to any kind of theological framework. So Nietzsche is right in the analysis, but then he is wrong in in his low esteem for many human beings. And the other way of resisting this uh, Nietzsche's highly egalitarian conclusions is also to to point out that so one, one could one could grant to Nietzsche even a fair amount of what he says about the range of human excellence that's present in people. But then the question is, uh, how operative should this be in society? And there I would say actually very little because the we have to acknowledge that 
in spite of all the anthropological diversity, uh, human beings live together in certain political and economic structures. And within these political and economic structures, everybody has a role to play. Everybody makes some kind of contribution. Everybody is expected to play by the rules. There is enormous and immediate sanctions if you're not playing by the rules. And so, so we live in a social world that is created by all of us together, that is uh, made possible by our willingness to cooperate with other people. And because of that, uh, everybody has a claim against the rest of us that the social world be arranged in such a way uh, that it makes sense to each one of them. And surely one way in which does not, it does not make sense for, uh, for a lot of people if, is if the organizing principle is that we are all organized around these few people displaying human excellence. So, so the idea that all of us who maintain social structures should agree to a principle like that is, is, just, is, is just insane. Uh, and the rebuttal to Nietzsche's point there really comes from acknowledging the fact that, that it requires a lot of intense cooperation and rule compliance of a lot of people to make our social lives possible. And in that sense, there's a more of a plurality or, or values, if you like, that someone's value uh, they may be compared to the Ubermensch, uh, very limited in their capacities, but yeah. they may be a very decent person, a very helpful person, someone who's very necessary yeah. socially. Yeah. So the Ubermensch, any any kind of the famous word, of course, that Nietzsche occasionally uses, he has a, he has a number of, of terms that he uses to describe this, this embodiment of human excellence, but their excellence can unfold in society only if everybody else is, is kind of going along with that and makes it possible. And so the idea that we are all participants in the social structure really has a priority here because it enables everybody within the structure to actually do what they are doing. And because of that, uh, everybody who's in the structure actually has a claim, again, against everybody else that that structure makes sense to them. We really do this together. We're in this together. Well, look, two very different perspectives, but I suppose what they, they have in common is that they both challenge the kind of view that we we base our fundamental fairness in society mm-hmm. on a straightforward view that we all have equal capacities and we also have the individual capacities to be fully autonomous and moral without any other kind of resources so um, it may seem an unlikely combination of ideas but there's perhaps something that brings it together so thank you both very much That was the last in the recent mini-series on philosophy East and West. There are nine other episodes in the archive to explore on the themes of self, harmony and freedom, and hierarchy and equality. To find out about future podcasts as soon as they are available, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed, or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggrün Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.berggrün.org. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.